today we're going to talk about medical treatment guidelines. And as I prepared uh, today's presentation, I realized how much of it had to change since the last time I did this topic. And the answer is almost everything. A lot has changed in the world of medical treatment. And so we're going to talk about the new guidelines, the ones that become effective in New York workers' compensation cases in January 2020. We're also going to talk about what the new expansion of provider law means and how that's going to affect cases and how we're seeing it affect cases. A um, little preview here, more ineffective care, more cost. Uh, we're going to talk about out-of-state care and what happens when you have claimants who go and seek medical care in other states and particularly for you employers and carriers that are seeing bills for out-of-state medical care, what you can do about that. Of course, I have to talk about medicinal marijuana and how that's uh, implementing throughout the state. I'm going to talk about telemedicine and really uh, that's going to be uh, one of the big updates that's happened in response to coronavirus or COVID-19. I'm going to talk to you about the drug formulary and how the implementation of that, uh, which should have been completed by now, is going to not be completed until January 1, 2021. And of course, I'm gonna leave some time at the end for questions and answers. So my goal is to try to talk for uh, 10 to 12 minutes or so, I'll walk you through what's new, what's different, what's important, a couple of tips and tricks here and there, and then answer as many of your questions as I can at the end. So uh, this is completely live. I, I hope uh, you're joining me today and you've maybe brought some questions with you um, and you can type them in as I speak and I will, uh, answer as many as I can at the end. I will not embarrass you. I'll not say your last name. I'll just say your first name so you know that I'm answering your question, and then I'll dive right into it. All right, so let's jump in. Uh, first, the current medical treatment guidelines. Uh, everyone is aware that uh, although in New York, the claimant has the option and opportunity to pick any physician that they want to treat them, uh, though the treatment is uh, subject to the medical treatment guidelines. And there's six of them that are currently in effect. Uh, guidelines for the mid and low back, for neck injuries, shoulder injuries, knee injuries, and carpal tunnel syndrome. And really when the board implemented uh, these guidelines, all of them except for carpal tunnel were the original implementations, the idea was, you know what, these account for the majority of injuries and they account for the majority of cost. Uh, they expanded the guidelines in 2014 to include carpal tunnel syndrome, and the most important one, the non-acute pain management guidelines. Uh, so I want to talk about that to just a second, or I will give you a slide on non-acute pain, but really the idea here is to uh, have the claimant obtain evidence-based treatment and for the carrier or employer to have some basis for limiting, disputing, or challenging unnecessary, ineffectual, and experimental care. That's really the point. Also with these guidelines, when they were implemented in 2012, uh, afterwards the board had to define what is maximum medical improvement. And if you think about how insane that is, uh, that's something that actually had to happen. Uh, maximum medical improvement is now defined. Uh, there are both board uh, bulletins on it, uh, which essentially describe it as the maximum benefit of curative care, as well as uh, statements within the guidelines themselves which indicate that there's no more curative treatment possible. The most important uh, definition of maximum medical improvement in New York, uh, we take it from a, uh, a board bulletin in which it says that the mere uh, potential for future surgery, the mere potential for future curative care is not a bar to finding MMI now. 
In so many of our cases in New York, we are fighting to get the claimant to MMI and to limit unnecessary care. It's an important definition to know and have by your side. There are new medical treatment guidelines coming, and they will be in effect on January 1, 2021. Uh, there is going to be a new guideline for elbow injuries. This will cover really the basics, things like obvious fractures, uh, bursitis, epicondylitis, those types of elbow situations. Now, if you were paying attention, you might have noticed that the board had circulated hand, wrist, and elbow guidelines, which included all sorts of other conditions, including things like human bites and defensive wounds. Uh, that has been um, gone the way of the dodo, and now the only uh, the, the guidelines that are going to phase in are concern the elbow only. Um, there's going to be ankle and foot guidelines effective January 1, 2021, and that will deal with uh, injuries, particularly of the heel, uh, plantar fasciitis, uh, ankle injuries, and even things like bunions and hammer toes are going to be covered by those new guidelines. Uh, and over there in the uh, control chair, uh, Lauren is going, eh, gross. Yes, it is kind of gross. Uh, last uh, are going, uh, uh, sorry, hip and groin. Uh, injuries. Uh, this also includes, by the way, injuries to the thighs, injuries to the hamstrings, so ruptures, tendons, osteoarthritis, for example, is included in this as well. Uh, and the last group is interstitial lung disease. And if you're wondering what that is, it's really any restrictive process in the lungs. Uh, there is a wonderful chart inside the guidelines on page 14 that demonstrates all the different types of lung conditions or injuries. Uh, but what's really important to know is that the pneumoconiosis case uh, situations, so things like asbestosis are going to be covered uh, by guidelines. Um, the granulomous injuries, so things where inhalation and restrictive process injuries are going to be covered. Um, and really also things like pulmonary hypertension are going to be covered uh, by this guideline that comes in. Uh, so if you're uncertain if your injuries that you're dealing with are covered, I would say see page 14 of that guideline. It's got a great handy dandy chart for you. Okay, um, I just want to remind everybody about the most important guideline or the one that uh, we rely on here a lot and can be useful for you in both reducing exposure and closing down cases. Uh, I've got a lot of cases here where the claimant's clearly just a druggie. And what do we do in those cases? Well, there are non-acute guidelines that deal very specifically with the need for the treating physician uh, to evaluate whether opioid weaning would be appropriate. I also want to remind everyone, uh, if you're unfamiliar with these guidelines, they, here's the page reference, page 66. You can go right there and check them out. Uh, and the board has done a good job of explaining what opioid weaning is and what kind of considerations there should be. But oftentimes uh, where this falls apart is, hey, Greg, how do I actually get an opioid weaning implemented? Uh, and so we advise people, you should file the request for further action. If you're filing electronically, it'll identify it as a request for further action dash two OP, which means opioid weaning request. Uh, if you're filling the uh, paper form out, you'll simply uh, check the box next to option K, which says, uh, judge this, we are requesting that the court uh, ask the physician who's treating the claimant to consider whether there's an opioid weaning option. Uh, so that's a really important one for us. I'm going to get to opioid weaning in just a second when we talk about medicinal marijuana. Uh, the other real big question I get from clients is about out-of-state care. Uh, yes, uh, a New York workers' compensation claimant, if they reside out-of-state and they're getting treatment out-of-state, are still subject to the medical treatment guidelines. 
And there is both board decisions on that, as well as statements throughout the guidelines, which you can rely upon. Now, I know it may be very difficult to control your out-of-state medical provider, uh, but you still have the option, or you should still be educating and instructing them, hey, you've got to follow the guidelines. You should be seeking approval for things that you're doing, and they should follow, in general, the guidelines. Again, going forward in January 2021, you'll have even more guidelines to point to, so that's very useful. A bigger question comes in regarding bills. Um, does the fee schedule apply to out-of-state medical providers? And the answer is, if the claimant lives in New York State, anywhere in New York State, and they go and get care outside of New York, in general, the New York medical fee schedule should still apply. And in fact, there is a statement in the new edition of the medical fee schedule, which specifically states, General Guideline 16, that the fee schedule shall apply for the county where the claimant is a resident. And so that's an important thing to know, particularly if you're the type of client uh, that I have many of who have situations where the claimant resides in New York, but their doctor is telling them, hey, why don't you go get your surgery in my ambulatory surgery center over there in New Jersey? And they cross the lovely Hudson River, and they go get their knee uh, arthroscope or their shoulder repair done in New Jersey. And we say, why would we do that? Why are they doing that? And the answer is because these providers are setting up the employers and carriers for medical provider claims. And the truth of it is uh, a knee scope surgery in New York might cost five to $6,000. In New Jersey, you will see a bill for 70, 80, $90,000 for that same surgery. And then you will have the medical provider saying, well, New York's fee schedule doesn't apply because I did this surgery here in New Jersey. Uh, so this is the way they set you up. Now, in my office, we defend these all the time. Uh, we defend them on the basis of no jurisdiction. We say it's a New York workers' comp case. The claimant lives in New York. They're crossing the river to get treatment here. There's no reason, judge, and you should prevail on those. You should pay nothing and prevail. More challenging is where the claimant has a New York workers' compensation case, and they're seeking medical care in New Jersey. Uh, and then the medical provider demands that you pay them under New Jersey's usual and customary scheme rather than pursuant to the fee schedule. Our advice in those cases is to pay the fee schedule and dispute the overcharge uh, that you're getting for the New Jersey care. And we have many defenses that you can apply to that uh, so that you can get that bill reduced down to the fee schedule. All right, uh, so that's a little bit about out-of-state care. Uh, we're about halfway through. I just want to remind everybody, if you haven't asked your question or typed it in yet, now would be a great time. All right, next. Another new thing uh, that implemented in 2019 and we're seeing the effect of today is this crazy, kooky, expanded provider law. And I, I get it that there are certain places in New York. It's a big state. We've got some rural areas where maybe getting a medical provider within the specialty is difficult. Uh, or seeing a provider might be difficult. And so really, I think this expanded provider law was an, an idea uh, to address that, but the way it's been implemented is a little kooky. So under the expanded provider law, nurse case I'm sorry, nurse practitioners, licensed clinical social workers, occupational therapists, physical therapists, and even acupuncturists, and even chiropractors uh, can be, treat can be uh, considered an authorized provider captain of the ship, so to speak, for the direction uh, and provenance of medical care. Uh, and the insanity here is that all of these nurse practitioners, licensed clinical social workers, acupuncturists, chiropractors, 
can file C-4 authorizations directly. So that is a C-4 authorization or for pre-approval or pre-authorization for treatment that they know exceeds uh, well beyond what's in the medical treatment guidelines. Because remember, all of these practitioners uh, or workers, social workers, I guess, are covered by the uh, medical treatment guidelines. Uh, so when they seek to go produce uh, or provide medical care that exceeds the medical treatment guidelines, now the law says that they can file their own request for authorization. And if you, the carrier, ignore it or don't respond to it, they'll be deemed authorized to provide that care. Also, nurse practitioners and licensed clinical social workers can file variance requests directly uh, on their own behalf. Uh, and again, that's not a pre-authorization, that's a variance request. So, you know, this is really strange. It, it just really results in more unnecessary medical care in general being provided. That's really something for us as risk professionals to keep our eyes on and uh, attempt to reduce as best we can. All right, drug formulating. New York also implemented a drug formulary for the first time. Uh, it became effective in 2019. And the drug formulary phased in, affecting all new prescriptions written after December 5, 2019. But what about old prescriptions? So the formulary had a contingent uh, contingency in there for prescriptions that had been written before December 5, 2019, and which were subject to refill. And it essentially said all of those prescriptions which are subject to refill uh, have to be uh, phased out uh, by June 5, 2019. 20, so about two months ago. What actually happened is COVID-19, and the board has extended the time for all of these refill or prescription refills to become compliant with the formulary until January 1, 2021. So we are still living in the world where all new prescriptions must be compliant with the drug formulary, which is great. Uh, and I'll talk for just a second about why that's great for us. Uh, but uh, the refills and uh, prescriptions that uh, were um, renewable, those can still be under the old drug formulary until January 1, 2021. Now, why this is, I don't understand it because the new drug formulary is very straightforward. It makes a ton of sense. Uh, one of the most important things about it says that if there's a generic, uh, that should be prescribed and filled, not a name brand. There's no need for name brand, brand name medications and workers' compensation. Generics are just fine. They're just as effective. Their statements in there to, so there are no uh, preferences towards name brands. And even where the claimant comes forward and says, well, I, I'm allergic to the non-name brand, uh, that doesn't fly. There's also significant limitations on the provenance of opioids, which is very useful for us, and also any type of custom compounding, you know, those kooky creams that some of these uh, doctors were coming up with where they're just mixing together uh, two very generic medications claiming it's custom and charging you a ton of money. All the compounds are out, all the customs are out. So that's really good for us. Uh, in general, the drug formula is a good thing for employers and carriers in terms of reducing costs. It's also good for claimants too, because it does eliminate some of the, the nonsense that was in the system. And it's certainly good for risk professionals because it's a lot easier to follow the formulary. Pretty simple. Uh, the board has an excellent four page summary of it on its website that's very easy to follow. Uh, what are your uh, group A, group B, uh, perioperative drugs, very simple to, to sort of implement. So it's really a very positive update. Next, let's talk just briefly about medicinal marijuana. I get a lot of clients questions about it. And no, medicinal marijuana is not in the fee schedule. 
Uh, so New York has a, something called the Compassionate Care Act. And that Compassionate Care Act uh, really determines what kind of treatments uh, medicinal marijuana is appropriate uh, for, or what kind of conditions medicinal marijuana is appropriate to be prescribed for. Well, in the beginning, it was really for end-stage cancer patients and uh, people with very significant uh, disorders that were not expected to live long. It was really considered sort of end of life. Um, it kind of follows the other states that have compassionate use. Uh, in New York, they call it compassionate care. But of course, over time, compassionate care has now expanded dramatically. And instead of people with, you know, on, on chemotherapy or an end stage of cancer, uh, now compassionate care uh, act applies for things like chronic headaches or even more generalized pain. And the compassionate care uh, now covers nearly every single condition. You could find some excuse to uh, get medicinal marijuana for it now in New York. Uh, entertainingly, um, they've defined pain and they say uh, what kind of pain should be uh, treated with medicinal marijuana or can be. And it says any pain that degrades health or functional capability. That's it. So pretty straightforward. Uh, the section of the act that describes about it says uh, the uh, practitioner can prescribe medicinal marijuana when there's any severe debilitating pain that the practitioner determines degrades health and functional capability. So it couldn't be vaguer, couldn't be more open-ended, and we are seeing medicinal marijuana in a lot of our cases. Uh, but because it's not subject to the fee schedule, it's not addressed in the formulary, and, and it can't be because it's still a federally scheduled substance. So how is it paid for? Uh, we do have a number of decisions now in New York about how it is paid for. And the answer is, uh, you can pay the dispensary director uh, di directly if you pay them in cash. Well, my clients don't pay people in cash, and nor do they mail me, uh, you know, suitcases full of cash for us to distribute to medicinal marijuana dispensaries. So really, the only practical way of paying for medicinal marijuana treatment in New York is to reimburse the claimant directly. So the claimant will pay for their medicinal marijuana and then the carrier will issue what's called an M&T reimbursement. M&T reimbursement uh, is directly sent to the claimant, and that's to reimburse them for their actual receipts. All right, um, uh, this is pretty much our last topic until we get into questions, so please ask your questions if you have any. Uh, the biggest impact we've seen from COVID-19 has been on telemedicine, um, telemedicine emergency uh, regulations were adopted both in March, on March 16th, and then again in April, they were expanded. Telemedicine has been the board's preferred way of making sure that claimants can get to their physicians uh, during the uh, panic. Now, um, it includes all sorts of things beyond your primary care physician or your captain of the ship, for example, uh, orthopedic physician. It includes things like psychotherapy, group therapy, and even things like chiropractic are allowed to be delivered versus telemedicine. Now, I don't know how a chiropractor who gives people back rubs and you know have their voodoo chant or whatever they do to treat people, how that would be delivered via telemedicine, but uh, they are uh, allowed to provide this care via telemedicine. Um, they are limited. All the practitioners aren't limited in how often uh, they can prescribe or produce this care. But when you think about a physical therapist doing telemedicine, okay, that's strange chiropractor that's really pretty far out there. Um, we are seeing that it's useful for some of the psychotherapy, which can continue, and group therapy can also continue. And inter interestingly, the group therapy does not have to contain only workers' compensation claimants, so they can be mixed in. All right, uh, let's go to live question and answer. 
Uh, this is live, so please, if you have any questions, type them in now so that I can answer them. It makes this a lot more fun, a lot more lively. Um, all right, I'm seeing a bunch here, so let's go. Uh, okay, Jamie, you want to be on our mailing list? No problemo. Okay, Chris A says, I can't hear you, and then he says, I can hear you. Okay, good. Uh, okay, so James says, Greg, what about uh, the move to the CMS 1500 form? What is the new form replacing and when is it effective? So uh, the board's been announcing a move to CMS 1500 for like five years. Uh, it was supposed to be implemented January 1, 2021. And this is going to replace all C4 family of forms, all of them. Every single form, with the exception of the C-4.3, will be replaced with the CMS-1500 form. And the implementation for this is expected to be, or was required to be, by January 1, 2021. However, I expect them to relax that, um, ultimately. I think it's unlikely that they're going to actually complete this transition. There's lots of problems, by the way, with the CMS-1500 form, which has no place for a narrative. So that form would require, now it's good for the doctors because it's basically the same form they're using for every other medical or, or health insurer that they deal with. And certainly with Medicare, uh, it would be, is exactly the same form. It's Medicare's form. So it's good for the doctors, probably simpler paperwork. Bad for us because the narratives still have to accompany the CMS-1500, which means they still have to be accepted and scanned by the board, which means there's some element of error or delay that could be uh, there. And so I'm not super happy about this initiative, but yes, it is still scheduled to phase in next year. Again, I'm pretty skeptical uh, about whether or not it's going to happen. All right. Uh, Chris A. asked the question, are you successful before workers' comp judges denying payment for those surgeries that take place in New Jersey? Yes. Uh, you know, these are not losers. Yeah, we should be fighting these. Uh, now, you've got some problems defending medical provider claims right now in New Jersey, and that's a big part of our practice here. Uh, one, well, the New Jersey workers' comp courts, for all uh, practical purposes, are closed, and they've been closed since March. Uh, the, the judges are, are hearing cases from home. Uh, really, filings are dramatically down. There's really no pre-hearing conferences going on. Uh, every single judge in the entire workers' comp system is uh, hearing their lists or going through their calendar differently. Really not like New York. New York, we haven't missed a beat, right? We haven't missed a single hearing. Despite the panic, everything's fine. Uh, in New Jersey, it's been a complete and total unmitigated disaster. So the challenge is not how do you respond to a medical provider claim and can you prevail? Because the answer is you can. The problem is getting in front of a judge and actually moving the case forward. And I can tell you that I've got dozens, if not maybe a hundred, motions to dismiss for lack of jurisdiction pending in New Jersey, and the judges just don't get to them, and that's because of caseload, and that's also because the courts have been closed. So that's the challenge. Leonard Elliott says, has the New Jersey Court of Appeals ruled on the New York claim versus New Jersey treatment issue? No, but there are two cases pending in New Jersey's appellate division on exactly that topic. Many of the judges, by the way, the workers' compensation trial-level judges, again, uh, these are the appointed judges, are refusing to make decisions on medical provider claims in New Jersey because they say, well, there's going to be an appellate level case on this sooner or later, so I'm not going to make any decisions yet uh, until that appellate level decision comes out, which is crazy, uh, but that's what they're saying. Uh, so that has also introduced some delay. So um, yeah, but as, as of right now, uh, Leonard, no, they should be making decisions. And you know, by the way, that's what appellate courts are for. All right, 
Uh, Teresa asked a question. In regards to out-of-state, what if the claimant lives out-of-state? Does the fee schedule follow the state in which, yeah, scroll down, the claimant lives? No. Haha, this is fun. So if the claimant lives in New Jersey, but they have a New York workers' compensation case, we're going to be arguing against the usual and customary scheme, but it is up to the judge, and there really isn't great case law in New Jersey for the judge to say that usual and customary does not apply. The more common situation I see, though, is New York City or and New York residents who are being told by their treatment provider to come get their surgery or come get their care in New Jersey. And the reason they're doing it is simply to hit you, the employer carrier, with fees. Where the claimant lives out of state, uh, you don't get the benefit of that state's fee schedule uh, because the jurisdiction of the fee dispute should follow the jurisdiction of the uh, where the workers' compensation claim is. And New York specifically says in its medical treatment guidelines uh, and in its medical fee schedule, if the other state doesn't have a fee schedule, then you're subject to whatever the, the costs in the other state. So there's two ways around that. Way number one, negotiate a rate with the out-of-state provider. You could simply say, look, I know you're part of a PPO. Can you give us those PPO rates? The other thing to do is, and particularly in New Jersey, which doesn't have a fee schedule for workers' compensation, but it does have a fee schedule for motor, motor vehicle claims. So we'll go into court and we'll just say, look, judge, yeah, there's no fee schedule for workers' comp in New Jersey. We get it. But you should apply the, if you're trying to figure out, judge, what's the appropriate uh, valuation for this care, and the, and the doctors want to come in and testify, I got a better idea. Why don't we just use the personal injury protection fee schedule uh, that the Motor Vehicle uh, Act requires? And we've had some success with that as well. All right. Um, Leonard says, Greg, to be clear, do the additional providers filing on their own must be authorized by the board? Yes. So all of those additional providers we talked about, nurse practitioners, chiropractors, acupuncturists, physical therapists, occupational therapists, licensed clinical social workers. Yes, they all must be coded and authorized by the board. Absolutely. Um, okay, Mary asked the question, if weaning of an opioid is ordered, say wean within eight weeks, does the carrier have to give written notice of final fill, et cetera, or can the carrier stop payment authorization of the prescription at the eight-week mark? Is the notice of decision reference sufficient? And she gives the example that this is a case where the provider is not complying with the weaning order and continues to write the prescription without reducing. So in general, I'd be very cautious about doing that, Mary, even though the order says the claimant is subject to the weaning order and should be doing it. I would generally not cut off future benefits. I would in general advise a client to file a request for further action and ask the judge to either enforce their own order or terminate benefits. It's really the safest thing you can do and will make sure that you uh, can close down your exposure in the most effective way. Otherwise, you may be in a situation where you're gonna be defending against a potential penalty. Um, Mary asks a follow-up question. She says, but what if we still approve the prescription outside the proposed weaning schedule? Um, can we later deny or adjust that? And the answer is yes. So just because there was an oops and the schedule got delayed, I don't see a problem in then saying, no judge, look, we tried to do our best. They're still under a weaning order and a weaning schedule. And even though uh, they, they got us, judge, they got some extra uh, you know, opioids, uh, judge, we're gonna put them back on that schedule. I think that's the right way to handle that. Okay, 
Uh, Chris asked the question, Greg, if you have several employees who all test positive for COVID-19 at the same time and work closely together, would that likely be work-related? If, if there's not an easy explanation for how they could have contracted outside of work, these are not public-facing employees. Okay, uh, so in general, there's two ways we analyze COVID-19 cases. We have a ton of them here. We've also had a lot, bunch of trials so far in COVID-19 cases, and we've been really successful. You've got to analyze these cases under two specific streams of thought. One, either it's a definite accident or what the board calls a determinate act, one specific incident or trauma. Or if there's an occupational exposure theory where the claimant is essentially saying like, ah, I work on an, a ward in the hospital where everybody's COVID-19, I got COVID-19. Come on, judge, I got it because of my occupational exposure. Those are the really two ways we're looking at it. And Chris, in your question, um, you're not giving me a determinate act or a specific traumatic event. You're really saying it just seems like that we have a cluster of them. So we're not going to analyze it under the determinate act sort of paradigm. Let's act, let's analyze under the occupational exposure case. Um, first, it's not up to you. It's not your burden to prove how they got it. Second, unless you're telling me there's something peculiar or distinctive about this employment that exposes these people to COVID-19. For example, they work in a laboratory and that laboratory is testing COVID-19 samples and they weren't wearing PPE or something really dramatic. Uh, in general, we should be disputing the compensability of those claims. Just because a bunch of people in the same employment test positive uh, does not mean that that employment has any peculiar or distinctive feature which is more likely than not to lead people to uh, sustaining that injury or infection. So my, my advice in that would be to disabuse that. All right, last question here. Christine asked the question, Greg, can a physical therapist or occupational therapist submit an MG2? That's a variance request. No, they cannot. Uh, they can only submit a C-4 authorization and that would be for a pre-approval of a treatment modality that they know exceeds the guidelines. Okay, that's all the questions. It's about 12.30. Thank you everybody who asked a question. Makes it so much more fun when I have questions. Uh, join us next month. Uh, we are gonna be talking about uh, occupational uh, cases and use of IMEs. And this will be very valuable for those of us who are defending COVID-19 cases. So please join us uh, next week as we discuss uh, the best use of independent medical evaluations. All right, everybody, I hope you have a great week. Stay safe and I'll see you soon.